When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, during Sleep Number's President's Day sale, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed plus special financing for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. See store for details. In this episode of Boss Files. We can't break this glass ceiling. And we've tried so many different things. Meet Reshma Saujani. She founded Girls Who Code, but admits she had no idea how to code at the time. Fast forward to today, and more than 30,000 girls have graduated from the program. Why she thinks girls will use technology differently to solve big problems. If you think about right now the companies that uh, many male entrepreneurs have built, I often feel like they're building companies to like replace their mothers. It's a controversial position for sure. We dive into that and wait until you hear what all these girls are achieving and building as they work to create a more equal world. Here's my conversation with Reshma Saujani. Reshma, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. I've read for years about what you've done and sort of been in awe of it from afar, so it's great to get to meet you in person. You're the power behind Girls Who Code, and before we get to the details of that, I'm interested as a young woman, as a young mother, and someone who's passionate about this, what would you say drives you? Hmm. Um, I think what drives me is I'm the daughter of refugees. And this, parent, this country literally saved my parents' life. Mm. And I think probably since the time I was 12 years old, I've wanted to give back. And so I looked for that opportunity in politics. I didn't find it. And I have found it in creating an, you know, an army of young women who are going to be change agents through code. Your parents, uh, refugees from Uganda, and you've spoken about your father specifically and the the books that he used to read to you, Dr. Martin Luther King, Gandhi, people you call incredible change agents. Mm. Tell me about that. So, you know, no matter how tired my father was, he would always come home at night and he'd sit me on the, his lap and Reader's Digest used to have these huge kind of almost like picture books of like these incredible leaders and he would read to me about them like Dr. King and Mahatma Gandhi and uh, Helen Keller. Mm. And I, I, w I wanted to be, uh, you know, I wanted to be giants like them. I wanted to do something good and, and to give back. Do you, do you feel like that now? That, that, well, I think this is the problem with women, right? We never feel like it's ever good enough. And so, like, I, my instinct is to say, no, I don't feel like I've achieved what I've wanted to achieve yet. Mm. Even though every day I get an email from another girl who tells me, right, the, the difference that Girls Who Code has made in, in her life. But no, I'm not done yet. 
Clearly you're not done yet. I, I get the sense that you're just getting started. <laughs> so let's go to Girls Who Code 2012. You started it. 30,000 plus graduates mm -hmm. of the program, is that right? Um, is it true that you didn't know how to code when you started it? No, I'm like the weirdest person to start Girls Who Code. <laughs> not only am I not a coder, I was terrified of math and science growing up. You know, I probably in my 20s would go to a dinner party and be like, ugh, I hate math, mm -hmm. right? Or, you know, when the check came at a restaurant, I'd be like, how, how do I calculate 20%, right? It was, I constantly had this fear and this nagging sense that I wasn't good at it. But I saw through running for office the opportunities that coding was creating, yeah. right? There's like 500,000 open jobs right now at a time and it was we're in that these jobs are are being created at a time where we are relying on American women to be our breadwinners. There's 500,000 yep. of these open computer science jobs yep. now, for, but only about four. In, I think the latest number is 2015 to only about 40,000 yes. um, women graduates yes. in the field and graduates in the field. 40,000 total graduates, and fewer than one out of five of those graduates are women. Wow. And it wasn't always that way. No, the, it was better in the 1980s. So much better. And I can't figure out why. Because we're talking about this left, right, and center. Yeah, now. yeah. I mean, we, I'm sure you saw Hidden Figures, right? I mean, the, the favorite movie of the year, <laughs> by the way. The pioneers of computer science were women. And then something changed in the 80s. Right. And I think a lot of that was culture, right? So the personal computer came out, and it was very much targeted as a toy for boys. You look at old Macintosh ads, you'll see this lovely family and a little boy staring at a computer. Mm. And these devices were transformative for boys because they tinkered and they took them apart, and boom, they thought about big technology right. ideas. How many little girls do you think know who Ada Lovelace is? Ah, I don't even want to know the number. Very few, which is why we've, we're creating this book series with Penguin to change yeah. that. Yeah. You, before you founded Girls Who Code, you brought up your run for Congress, so mm. we have to dive into this <laughs> because it's fascinating. So, so you run for Congress, you try to unseat a Congresswoman who's been in her seat since 1992, and you said, you know, I'm going to disrupt the status quo. The polls told you a different story. You didn't believe the polls, which we know are not always correct. <laughs> you, you lose bad. Yeah. 19 percent of the vote is what you get. Horribly. What was it's that like? like a couple million bucks for that 19 percent. I know, brutal. It was it was uh, uh, it was horrible. I had never really failed at something like that before, and so publicly, like everybody knows you lose. Mm -hmm. I had gone up against the establishment; they were pissed. I was broke. I had put in my like life savings right into kind of not working to run for, for run for office, and I just I didn't know what I was going to do next because like this was the thing mm -hmm. that I wanted to do, and it was supposed to work out. And it didn't. I remember Meg Whitman, who ran in California, obviously the CEO of HP Enterprise, talking in an interview I did a long time ago about after she lost yeah. um, the race there, coming home, and her husband came home to her sitting on the couch, like <laughs> eating and watching TV, and he was very concerned. Yeah. He's like, this, is not, this yeah. is not you. But it's a scary moment. I mean, and you've talked about taking money uh, donations from yeah. friends, family, sort of everyone. But you've also said that it was liberating to lose. So liberating. Well, because I had, I wasn't dead. <laughs> you know, and sometimes we think that we're going to do something and it's going to kill us if it doesn't work out. And I was, not only was I not dead, but in those 10 months or 11 months that I ran for office, I was alive, more alive than I've ever been. And so I finally found right? What I was, what I was meant to do, even though it didn't work out.
That, so that really sounds like you're going to run again. Yeah, well, I don't know if I'm going to run again, but I think that so much of what I do on a day-to-day -day basis at Girls Who Code was part of what I loved about being a candidate. How? Because I think, you know, right now what I'm doing is I, I evangelize. I'm building a movement. I speak in Kansas and Nebraska and Phoenix to parents, to a lot of men, talking about why we need to close the gender gap in tech. So, like, I'm convincing people that something needs to change, and I'm inviting them to be a part of it. And maybe in your purest sense of what you think a politician is, like that's kind of it, right? Mm -hmm. You've got a big idea that you want to then go talk to people about and get them engaged and involved in it. And I know sometimes it doesn't feel like our political system feels that way right now. But for many of us who wanted to go into politics, that's why. So not ruling out another run. Not ruling out another run. All right. But it's got a... I gotta feel That's a more direct answer than I get from most politicians, <laughs> by the way. <laughs> no, but it's got... I got... I have... I make a difference every day. And, you, d you do. And that feels good. And I would never run unless I felt like I could make more of a difference every day than I'm making now. And that's a pretty high bar. So let's talk about what you're doing right now with Girls Who Code. You're well underway. You guys are five years in. You gave a TED Talk recently mm. that I watched, and my one-year-old daughter was in the room running around, <laughs> and I was hoping, Sienna, can you, <laughs> can you understand this? Listen to this. Listen to this. This is what Mommy always says. The headline of it, teach girls to be brave, not to be perfect. And you argue that we're raising our boys to be brave and that we actually reward them for failure, mm -hmm. but we do the opposite with girls. We say you have to be perfect or. Yep. What does that mean for their development and what does it mean for society as a whole? So I'll give you a really a perfect example. My son's swim class. My son is two and a half years old. Half the girl, half, he's got half boys and half girls in the swim class. And when the girls are first learning how to swim, all the parents are like, it's okay, honey. You don't have to get your face wet. Don't be scared. <laughs> and with the boys, they're like pushing them Just into the dive deep in. end. Right? At like six months, mm. the dads and the moms. Because they're trying to teach their sons to be fearless, mm. to be risk takers. And what happens is when they get older, they raise their hands for opportunities they know nothing about. Right? They are completely, con you know, feel like they can be president or like the king of Prussia, right? Mm -hmm. They are endless. Their eyes are endlessly large in what they think their ambition is. Mm -hmm. We, we're now coddled and protected and we're scared, right? We're not comfortable with fear and rejection mm -hmm. because we have never been put into those spaces and places mm -hmm. to feel that. And then all of a sudden, it's like we are pursuing things that we're good at, but not things that we're passionate about. So, I mean, what are parents supposed to take away from that? Because a lot of it is in school, yeah. and it's society and what we portray through, through media and television, which we'll get to in a moment. But what are parents sitting at home listening? I mean, I have a lot of friends who are yeah. new parents, and we're just sort of figuring this yeah. thing out. So what does it mean that we need to be aware of that we might be doing pretty unconsciously? So one, um, all those micro acts, the fixing the dress and straightening the bow, and when they spill applesauce, you change them in two seconds, stop that. So Sienna's hair can just be in her face. A mess. All right. Let her be a mess. <laughs> let her get dirty, dirty, let her play. I think it's when the toilet's broken when she's five or six, like mm. you or your husband, take her to go fix it. Put a drill in her hand as young as you possibly can. Like get her to build or create. Like I don't know if you feel this way, like, but when I get a new toy, I'll try to figure it out. If I can't figure it out in 60 seconds, I'm like, no, can you do this? Or the I, television remote. Yes. Or like, you know, he always jokes like, he's my tech support. I have stopped doing that. Good. Like, that's my bravery lesson, right? I'm going to figure it out myself. What are the societal impacts? You study the data. What does the data show us about the societal impacts to not encouraging our girls equally 
on that front? How does it hold yeah. this? hold the country back. Yeah, I mean, I think you're looking at that right now in terms of 19% representation in Congress, you know, less than 20% representation, you know, in senior management positions at companies. Like, we can't break this glass ceiling. And we've tried so many different things, and there's been so many different, I think, philosophies and feminist ideas about how we do this. Mm -hmm. And I think the thing that's holding us back is ourselves. And I think that it starts at such a young age and I think it's all—it's never too late to learn how to be brave. So, what about other countries? Um, Japan, for example, that's been dealing with you know more than a decade of economic stagnation. Uh, you know, their 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 latest initiative has been to focus economically on empowering women. Yeah. Um, are there countries that are examples that have done it well, better than the United States that we can learn from? I think it's just different. Like when I go to India, for example, or you know, China graduated 350,000 engineers last year. They may argue that they don't have the same gender gap, you know what I mean, at the early kind of college level. And that gap begins to increase like later in life. So mm -hmm. India, for example, it's social status to not work. So many women go into their engineering program, into their computer science program, they work for two years at IBM yeah. and then they leave. Yeah. And so I think the problems are different. Um, but I think the thing in the United States, I think that's particularly unique is we're now moving, we're now at a time where it's unlikely that you're not going to have to have two breadwinners in the family, yeah. right? So I go to so many places in the Rust Belt that have just changed, and they're not, they're not catching up with that change. And so if our American women are gonna work to put food on the table mm -hmm. and pay for the mortgage, mm -hmm. then we better make sure that they get put into jobs that pay well mm -hmm. and that pay their worth. Mm -hmm. And that's why I'm such a huge advocate about computing jobs, because those are the jobs. In your commencement speech at Harvard, you gave the commencement speech at the Graduate School of Education right the day before Mark Zuckerberg mm -hmm. gave his. And you made headlines. You talked about white men never having a monopoly on good ideas. They just occupy a lot of that space. And, and you've talked about knowing Silicon Valley was a boys club, but didn't you didn't know it started so early. <laughs> yeah. It started in high school, right? Yep. It's true. I mean, I think that... And, and I, I'm writing a book about bravery, and I'm not, I'm not saying that we need to be like men. I think we need to be brave like women. But I think the thing that I find fascinating is they really do raise their hand to do things that they know nothing about. They don't feel like, you know, I talk about this in my TED Talk, that women feel like they have to have 100% of the credentials, right? to feel like they can actually apply for a job. And men just don't yeah. feel that way. So, so, right, I mean, in the data show that many w women yeah. don't even go for those jobs yeah. if they don't have nine out of the 10 criteria listed on the, on, uh, you know, on the job posting. I mean, who has that? But men go for it if they have like four of them. Yeah, and I think Zuckerberg's a representation of that, right? Had an idea, dropped out of Harvard, you know what I mean, started a company, and you know, and he's, that's it. And I, I wonder, why are women not doing the same thing? And I think it's because, again, at a very young age, we coddle our girls, we protect them, we don't encourage risk taking. I always say like, for, if you come to my house, literally on my refrigerator is a rejection letter from a community board. So like, I, I, I lost twice, applied, uh, ran for office twice, lost twice. I thought, you know what, at least I can get on my community board, on the education committee, because I know something about education nope, open up the mail one day, big fat rejection letter from my community board. <laughs> it hurt, yeah. 
But I opened up that thing, that letter and I posted it on my refrigerator mm -hmm. and I look at it every single day mm -hmm. as a reminder of who I am and what I'm doing and what I can achieve. And I'm not gonna let anybody tell me that that's not true. I mean, failure is my greatest driver, yeah. it's yours. We both tried to get into Yale Law School. <laughs> you got in after, after three, three tries. Right. I only tried once, but I mean, for me, it was this dream of following in my father's footsteps, being an attorney, being a litigator. I had no plans of being a journalist. And I applied to, you know, Yale, Harvard, had straight A's in college, spent far too much time in the library, didn't get in. I was in tears getting those rejection letters, feeling like everything I had worked for was lost. Yeah. Turns out it was the best thing that ever happened to me. I love being a journalist. I love my career. But it motivated me so much that I just worked so incredibly hard and I've been going ever since. For you, you have to share the story of Yale because it's remarkable that you tried three times. Yeah, so I did, I was obsessed with going to Yale Law School from like the time I was little. <laughs> I decided I went, wanted to be a lawyer because I saw this movie and I had this amazing female attorney. And it's I was totally like, like the movie. Yeah. <laughs> so I was like, Dad, take me to the library. I want to look up what the best law school is because I was like super ambitious back then too. Of course, you know, get the U.S. News and World Report. It's Yale Law School. You know, by that time we photocopy it on those large photocopy machines, right? The kids don't know anything we're talking about now. But anyway, I come home, post it on my refrigerator. I circle it with my Hello Kitty marker, and I'm like, I'm going to Yale. You know, graduate college. I mean, graduate college. You know, first in my class, mm. University of Illinois, right? Apply to Yale Law School. Don't get in. Mm. Get into a, a ton of other schools. I'm devastated, right? Because I've literally spent years for this moment. I decided to go to get my master's in, in, at the Kennedy School instead. You went to Harvard. Uh, instead. I went to Harvard, yeah. right? But to me, it was like settling, right? Because I didn't get into the thing I <laughs> wanted to work. get into. Crazy. <laughs> um, met a mentor. Uh, you know, Le applied again. Didn't get in again. Yeah. Met a mentor, Leon Higginbotham, who was the first federal black jurist mm. um, on the Third Circuit. Like, you go to Yale Law School. Literally, his portrait is like right there. The right there. He's like, don't worry, I got you. You know what I mean? Like, I'm going to write your recommendation letter. He dies. Oh. But he dies before he writes my recommendation letter. Right. I am so obsessed, right, with going to the school that literally at his funeral, I meet the assistant to the dean, tell her my story, get her to give me an appointment. She gives me an appointment. And I get on a train to New Haven and, like, knock on the dean's door. This is try number three. Try number three. Instead of calling security, he, like, lets me, like, plead my case. And he was like, okay, go to any of the law schools that you've gotten into. Now, I've gotten into Georgetown, wow. Columbia, you know what I mean? Good, amazing Great schools. Great schools. And get into the top 10% and I'll, and I'll let you in. So I went to Georgetown and literally I had no friends, right? I would sit there in the front of the class and be like, I know the answer. Um, I feel like I never watched a movie. Like, didn't do anything but just hunker down to get straight A's so I can go into Yale Law School. And I went. And here's the thing, like, I, I always joke, I'm like, I spent the, the next two years at Yale just partying, you know? <laughs> you had to have the release. Right, I had the release. But if I had stayed at Georgetown, I would have probably clerked on the Supreme Court. It was, you know what I mean? We put so much energy yeah. and emphasis. Nobody asked me now where I went to law school. Yeah. And it took me off path. Hmm. Because that, chasing that dream, made me chase a lot of other credentials mm -hmm. that I thought I needed, mm -hmm. but were no way connected to what was here in here. I've only known you for about 20 minutes now, but you seem pretty brave to me, doing that, knocking on the dean's door, running for office multiple times. Is there something your parents did 
that did not coddle you. Yeah. That gave you the bravery or was this something you came yeah. into on your own later in life? No validation from my parents. I mean, I think it's it's like my after I lost my campaign, my father sent me an email the next day and being like, here are the top 10 things that you should have done differently. Wow. He's tough. My dad is super tough, but I also, he's super proud of me. He just doesn't tell me how great I am. Do, does day. that help you? Yes. I think he didn't coddle me. You know, I mm -hmm. think he didn't protect me. I think he pushed me out in the universe, allowed me to get hurt and made me just dream bigger. Mm -hmm. I want to talk about some of the girls that are now being brave and who are in Girls Who Code and who are graduating from the program and learning about it and some of their accomplishments. There's a girl named Cora, mm -hmm. I believe, right? Mm -hmm. Who has this remarkable story about an app she created to help her sick father. Yeah. So Cora was one of the first girls in our Girls Who Code program. And her dad got diagnosed with cancer when she was about five years old. And so she was like, I I'm going to be a doctor. I want to save his life. But at Girls Who Code, she learned the connection between medicine and computer science. And she built an algorithm to help detect whether a cancer is benign or malignant. She's at the University of Michigan now, like studying computer science. Um, she's pretty amazing. These stories are often not told enough. Yeah. Media is getting better. I see it uh, in the children's programming that's out there. Gina Davis has been a really loud and, yeah. and great voice on just media's portrayal of women. Um, but how much do you believe that what we consume is to blame, how things are marketed, and is it, uh, is it changing materially or not yeah. enough? It's huge. It's, it's why I decided to do these books. You know, I would speak at, at, at events, especially in, 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 in hard-to-reach places in America, and I have parents coming to me in tears and being like, well, well, what can I teach my daughter? And I went on Amazon and I was like, there are no books for girls that are about coding and where girls can see themselves. Because I think that literary representation matters, right? If you can't see yourself, how can you imagine what you could be? And that's why we're doing you know, this, this book series with Penguin about five relatable characters that literally look like me and you and every girl in America mm -hmm. so they can see themselves and their stories mm -hmm. in these young women. Like the stories of, of hidden Cora. figures and, and Cora figures and all of and these. All of them, yep. What problems do you think that our country could solve if we socialized our women to be more brave and yeah. our girls, if we encourage them, if we saw parity in terms of graduating classes in computer science, for example? Every single problem. And, and if you go to our project gallery board on our website, you'll see. I mean, I have girls, I have two girls, uh, Lucy and Maya, who built an app on lead poisoning because they saw mm. that kids were dying in Flint, in Michigan. Flint, yeah. I have a bunch of girls in Austin who built a machine learning tool to track where Zika was going because Congress couldn't get it together, right, to pass a bill for funding. I have seen girls tackle every single big problem from cancer mm -hmm. to lead poisoning to climate change to homelessness to bullying in schools. I mean, there is literally no problem that we can't solve. And, you know, and it, it, listen, here's the thing, right? It's, it's, if you think about right now the companies that uh, many male entrepreneurs have built, I often feel like they're building companies to like replace their mothers, right? It's like, I'm hungry and I'm sitting on my couch, Uber Eats, you know what I mean? I don't feel like walking my dog, let me call WAG, right? Or they're using artificial intelligence to like build basket sizes in Target. Like, no, like girls will use 
technology to solve big problems. But are you, come on, are you saying that men, companies started by men are not solving big problems right I, I'm not saying that they're not solving big problems, but I'm often saying that they're solving problems that they are uniquely feeling. And one of the things that I have, and listen, I will, you know, I will often judge hackathons, which are with yeah. a lot of boys. I'm judging a hackathon with a bunch of girls this weekend. And the things that they want to solve are just different. And I'm not saying all. I don't want to, you know, have sweeping generalizations. But one of the things that I think I've found that is uniquely female is our empathy and our seeing what's happening in our home or our community or the world mm -hmm. and wanting to do something about it. And to me, it's it's game-changing. It's, it's why... It was the biggest aha for me mm -hmm. when I started Girls Who Code. I was like, oh my God, like we're going to empower thousands and thousands of girls to like use technology to solve big problems. Trust me, I think that the kinds of ideas and companies you're going to see mm -hmm. as we give girls and women the power of computing and technology is going to fundamentally change. But what about the argument that some have made that sort of the rise of girls or the rise of women means man down, if you will, that it comes at, can, can come at the expense, depending on how it's messaged, at, uh, of little boys. Do you see that argument? And what do you say to people about sort of all, yeah. you know, rising tide lifts all ships in the role that, that fathers have yeah. and that little and big brothers have in lifting their sisters yeah. up? I mean, listen, I'm a, I'm a mother to a son. Yeah. You know, and there's nothing that brings me more joy than reading to him <laughs> you know, about Rosie Revere, the engineer, Ada the Scientist, right, and, and these amazing books that we're going to have coming out with Penguin. I think all kids should learn how to code. Like, I think that this is an opportunity we have to give every single one of our children. I think the problem is, right now, culturally, the images that we see are very male. And so we have to be thoughtful and think about how, to, how can we actually be more, how can we open the door? And again, I mean, that's why... This is the first time in these books that you're telling the story of computer science through the voice of a girl. Mm -hmm. Like, how is a girl going to feel when she sees Lucy, who loves videos and animation, you know, building something? Like, it's rather than seeing Mark, you know what I mean, who she always has seen, yeah. you know, creating something. It, it, it sparks a light in them. I love the show Silicon Valley. I mm -hmm. will admit my husband and I <laughs> sat on the couch for far too many hours Friday night just watching episode after episode. But it's all men. men. It is all men in that house, in that incubator. All men are on the table. But it's a reflection of reality uh, to a large extent in Silicon Valley. Um, what's the role of media and Hollywood studios in p bringing to light these store like hidden figures did it's huge. it? huge. I mean, I have this. I literally shock Shonda Rhimes like all the time. <laughs> because I, I would tell her, I said, listen, you, have, you played a big role in the reason why my law school class was half female. Because we forget that in the 70s, only 10% of doctors and lawyers were women, and today, over okay. 55%, because of Grey's Anatomy, L.A. Law, Holly McBeal. You know, we were inundated in the 80s, mm. 90s, and 2000s, right, with mm -hmm. these fabulous women that were doctors and lawyers, and we said, me too. Yeah, I want to be that. True. I did that. You did that. When you see technology, what do you see? Silicon Valley. Yeah. Right? That's typically what you see. Hidden yeah. Figures is an outlier. Yeah. So I think that Hollywood plays a huge, huge, huge role in changing those images. Mm -hmm. And so do we. So let's talk about the role of the government in all of this. Um, you know, it's, it's, it confounds a lot of people when they try to wrap their head around 
why some classes are mandated in public schools yeah. across America and classes that can literally, will literally lead to the jobs of the future like coding classes are not. Yeah. Should it be government mandated in, in, all, in all schools? I'm a big proponent of mandatory computer science education. Absolutely. So why isn't it? Well, I think that, I think we're working on it. You know, I think that there's a movement out there, you know, we're speaking, we're addressing all the governors this, this weekend. You know, there's a movement out there to get computer science in the classroom. Mm -hmm. Um, but it has to replace something else. And as you know, as Maybe, a parent, or you make school days or you, longer, or you make which school is controversial. Days longer, which is controversial, or you take something out, which is controversial. But something has to give. I think the first step, though, is educating policymakers that, that, they're, like, that literally mm -hmm. technology is changing the way that we live and work, and it's happening so fast. Yeah. Well, look, I think, uh, I think they know that. I think they see it in their, you know, in their, in their hometowns. I think they see where the jobs are and where they aren't. Um, you know, in the Trump administration, and let's be very clear, Hillary Clinton is your mentor. Mm -hmm. You were a big supporter of her, so that's where your politics are. Politics aside for yeah. a moment, Rashma, what is the number one thing you would like to see the Trump administration do on this front? Well, I think, first of all, I represent girls who are trans, gay, undocumented, Muslim, um, and I'd like to see the Trump administration stand up for all girls. Okay, so Ivanka Trump. Uh, who is a close advisor to her father. She talked about taking a coding class this summer with mm -hmm. her daughter, Arabella. Mm -hmm. You two have had your differences, which mm -hmm. we'll get to in a moment. <laughs> Good example? Good example of what? To set? Of her taking her child to learn how to code. I mean, I think as a parent, that's what every parent should be doing. So let's talk about what happened. She wrote this book um, recently, Women Who Work, and she talked about your story in it. And, yeah. and you took to Twitter afterwards and you tweeted, Ivanka Trump, don't use my story in Women Who Work unless you're going to stop being complicit. Talk to me about what was behind that and, and, and more what you hoped to come from it. Yeah. I mean, look, I, I, we have spent, you know, five years building a movement to create opportunities for girls. And, you know, I spent a lot of time going across the country and just see, you know, how many parents and families are, are struggling. And, you know, there's often a narrative out there that we're bringing coal jobs back, which we're not. And I think it's incumbent upon both the private sector and the public sector to create real opportunities I for mean, their children. If you look at the numbers, some coal jobs have come back, but it's, it's around 1,300. It, this, right. is not the this is not the mass right. jobs movement. Right. So, I mean, I think the, the, the question is, is what is the role of government, right, yeah. in, in creating and in providing those opportunities? And, you know... Again, I think that, you know, some of the policies that have come out in this administration are not necessarily female friendly. And for my girls, it's, it's beyond just learning how to code, right? It's like I have girls who are undocumented who are, every time they leave the house, are in tears because they think they may not see their, parent, their mm -hmm. mother again. I have girls who are Muslim who go to school every day and get their hijabs ripped out. I have girls who are trans who can't find a bathroom to use. I have girls, you know what I mean, that are literally getting affected every day from things that are coming out of this administration. Mm -hmm. And I, as the founder and leader of this movement, will always fight for them. Mm -hmm. I will always stand up for them. That's my role. Is there room, do you believe, to work together with the administration? You know, 
uh, tech executives have taken different approaches. Some of them, like Tim Cook, for example, although he's been vocal about where he mm -hmm. disagrees with this administration, just as you have, still goes to these roundtables, has a seat at the table, thinks that's the best option. Yeah. Others have opted out. I mean, where do you stand, Reshma? Would you go? to the White House to talk about this stuff if invited? What would you? Well, I haven't gone yet, have I? Right, have you been invited? Um, I have probably made it clear that I would not attend okay. until I see this administration stand up for my girls. But tell me why, because why not well, go not... and have the conversation and well, push your agenda there? If, if I believe that that could make a difference, if I believe that that would change the president's policies on the Muslim ban, if I believe that that would change his policies on, you know, undocumented students and parents, mm -hmm. then that would be a different conversation. And I think if those things change, if I, if I would think that, you know, uh, reproductive rights is not going to be defunded, like, I think that if that happens, of course the conversation is open. But I'm in a very different position than Tim Cook, right? I, I represent a nonprofit. I represent a movement that's about activism for girls mm -hmm. and advocacy for girls and you know so much more of what we do poppy than just teaching coding is about teaching bravery and resilience and confidence and so i at fundamentally girls who code is a, an advocacy organization for girls mm -hmm. and so you know this is not you know we're, we're going to the nga and i'm taking the stage with republican governors it's not about politics yeah. it's not about I mean, in fact one of the things that excites me the most about our work is that coding is uh, coding in girls is actually quite nonpartisan, and we can get ad we have advocates on both sides. And we did a female governor summit with uh, Republican governors with Sheryl Sandberg. So it's not about it's yeah. not about Republicans versus Democrats. It's about specific policies that have been advocated by this administration that are hurtful for my girls and their families. So in the spirit of bipartisanship, because yeah. they talk a lot about it in Washington, yeah. a lot on, on our show yeah. every day, I'd like to see more of it. What Republican lawmaker, governor, senator, yeah. state level, anything, have you found um, has been the best for you to work with? Do you, you know, have you felt like as a Democrat, um, like we can really make some, uh, make some change here. Oh, I totally think we can. I mean, I, this is why I'm going uh, to the NGA this weekend. You know, uh, Governor Hutchinson and I are actually kicking off a, a girls hackathon on Friday. Okay. I'm having several meetings um, with probably many Republican governors to talk about like how do we keep our eyes on gender. I actually think that there is a massive opportunity um, in the states to really create some bipartisan support for, mm -hmm. for computer science education. Mm -hmm. This isn't something, this isn't a political issue. You know, we should all be on the same it's page. It's the future of America. It's the future issue. of America. And, and particularly, I think, from a gender perspective, I think for a lot of these communities, they're seeing the impact um, of the economic state of our country on, on girls and, the, and their families. You know, a number of when, when we were traveling along the Rust Belt during the election and, and covering some of these key states and jobs and manufacturing jobs, um, parent after parent, mothers and fathers told us, you know, uh, I have a good manufacturing job, I make a good living, or I just lost mine. But I don't want that job for my child. Yeah. Because they were seeing mm -hmm. that many of these jobs, not all of them, aren't the future. Uh, for you, again, in that Harvard commencement address, you said, it took me 33 years to figure out brown girls can do white <laughs> guy things, too. How personal is this for you? 
It's very personal. I mean, I, my parents literally came here with $10 in their pockets. And they have created opportunities for themselves and for, look at me. Like, when, this should happen for every single family out there, but it's not. Like, I often wonder if my dad came to this country today, whether I'd be sitting here 30 years from now, that whether we're creating those same kinds of opportunities. Mm. So it's incredibly personal for me. Hillary Clinton, as I mentioned, mm -hmm. is your mentor. You've mm -hmm. known her since I believe you were 18 years old. Lesson from her? Ah, look, I think she's remarkable. And one of the things that I have spent the past, you know, 30, 20 years watching her is just, you know, dusting off her pantsuit and like, she just keeps going. It's resiliency. She has the power of conviction. Uh, and I think that that is really important for the rest of us to watch and learn from. You've talked publicly before about watching her concession speech after the yeah. 2008 election and feeling like she was yeah. staring at you? <laughs> well, I feel like she was staring at all of us and I feel this way about her second concession speech. But, you know, the first one, it was really about like, you know, just because I failed doesn't mean you shouldn't try to. Like, I'm not gonna lie, after the second, I was at Javits Center and I'll never forget that night. And I remember waking up the next morning feeling like, how am I gonna face our girls? Like, we're never gonna have a female president in our lifetime. And um, I bucked up a couple of days later and I doubled down on my commitment to my work, mm -hmm. to my girls, and to you know creating opportunities for women. This is one bump in a road. We're gonna get there. What advice would you give your younger self? Ah. To have, like, I should have, I don't know if I should have applied to Yale Law School three times. <laughs> I probably should have, like, now I don't feel so bad for not doing it. And then that. gone to the best law school I got into. But I just, I put so much stock in, like, chasing credentials and wanting to be liked and trying to fit in. And I, um, I've always known what I feel like I'm put on this earth to do. And I didn't listen to that because you felt like you were doing what, what society yeah. dictated was and, the best? Yeah, and I think even now, I mean, even about the tweet you mentioned earlier, like, I, bravery is just a muscle that I exercise now on a daily basis, and I live an authentic life. Gets me in trouble sometimes, mm -hmm. you know, but I have no regrets, and I, I say what I believe is right. You're a mom, you have a two and a half year old son, what do you hope, I think about this a lot with mm. my daughter, what do you hope that he will say about you one day? Oh, wow. Um, I hope he believes that like all the time that I spend away from him was worth it because I made a difference. So we have a joke in my household. My, my, my husband bought my daughter the book. There's this book called Dada by, I think it's Jimmy Fallon. And the, all it says is Dada. And you just read it to her over and over and it says Dada. So they'll uh -huh. say Dada. So of course she said Dada first. <laughs> so she could say Dada and Bye Bye. So he would joke that when I was leaving to go to work every day, I was Bye Bye. But I hope Sienna embraces Bye Bye yeah. one day as an example. Because I certainly did watching my mother watching my mother go to work. And it's hard, right? Because everyone I'm kind of leaving is like, work, <laughs> work. And I want to be like, sorry, I have to go to work. But I just thought, I'm like, yes, I'm going to work. I'm really excited about it. And I'll mm -hmm. see you later. I love mm -hmm. you. 
the world you want to leave for your son is, finish the sentence. Is equal. You hopeful? Yes, very. Well, I'm excited to see what you do to make it that way, Rashma. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Boss Files. If you're a fan of the show, please go to iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe. And while you're there, leave us a rating or a review. Let us know how we're doing. And as always, you can follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Poppy Harlow CNN. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.